0: Welcome to the Struggling Pastors Podcast, real conversations about ministry and life. My name is Tian Doan, and I am a struggling pastor. On today's episode, I have a uh, special interview. I am interviewing Dr. Chuck DeGroat, who is a professor of, of counseling, pastoral care and counseling at Western Seminary. He is an author of several books, and we are going to be discussing his latest book called When Narcissism Comes to Church, and we're going to talk about this this issue of narcissism and and how damaging it is for the church, how damaging it is for for the pastor. Um, Chuck is a a very insightful person, and I think you'll get a lot out out of this episode, so Let's uh, let's listen in to my interview with Dr. Chuck Degroat. Well, on today's show, I have a uh, guest, Dr. Chuck Degroat uh, from uh, Western Seminary. Hey, Chuck, how you doing?
1: Good. How are you,
0: uh, Chuck? We are. Um, we've been working with church planters, both of us for, for a number of years. And I met you at a, a, at a a church planting conference a few years ago. Um, and you just came out with this book, um, called when narcissism comes to church. I really wanted to spend some time talking about this book. So, uh, when, when, when did this book come out just, uh, uh, just recently?
1: Well, yeah, it came out of right at the beginning of COVID-19, in fact. So probably a terrible time for a book launch. But um, yeah, yeah, it was uh, March, March 2020.
0: And being, you know, being an author myself, I know that a a book doesn't come out of nowhere. It, it, It seems that you've been working on this topic as, you know, in the counseling and the ministry department. I actually looked up and I saw some old YouTube uh videos of you teaching this several years ago teaching some of this stuff even before the book was was launched so can can you tell us about kind of the the background of, of why you know why you wrote this
1: yeah well yeah you said at the top that you and i both have some history in the church planning world and i was a pastor in orlando uh i was then a pastor in san francisco california about 15 years ago or so I started doing pastoral assessments and um, probably longer than that now uh, part of part of that work was done in in church planning contexts and but uh, that's that's really where I began getting into how narcissism shows up in in pastors uh, in and through these pastoral assessments where we would do some psychological assessment and I was noticing that pastors and uh, and, and church planners maybe even a little bit more we're testing in what we call cluster B personality disorders. Uh, these would include narcissism, histrionic personality, borderline personality. Um, these tend to be the more grandiose personalities, more dramatic, um, and 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 there are attributes that you'd find in that kind of personality type that would be amenable to ministry. But when the problem is when they spike into the personality disorder range and they become more pathological, and we were beginning to see. In The you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s, we were beginning to see in the context that I was in pastors who had been uh, basically coronated into church planting because of their apparent gifts and fundraising ability and communication style and everything like that. Uh, not too many years in having major falls, uh, and sometimes in the case, in some cases, there were falls because of adultery or something like that, but in other cases. Uh, there were the d- typical dynamics of narcissistic behavior, bullying, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, um, manipulation. Uh, so it's been a, a long time coming. Uh, I think it was probably about three or four years ago when some friends said to me, hey, there's not really a book that describes these dynamics clearly. Would you be willing to write something? And I, I sort of reluctantly agreed to, to write the book.
0: You know, I'm actually um, very thankful and and a little bit mad at you for for writing this book. Uh, I picked it up and I actually I I have about four of your books. Um, I I think you've written uh, a couple more, but I I have four of them. But this one kind of made me kind of a little upset because in it, it talks about 10 signs of narcissism. and And it seems like like, man, is Chuck talking to my wife here to come up with this list because it's like, man, it's almost 10 for 10. Usually you don't want to score, you know, um, scoring perfect on a test is a good thing, but I I didn't like, I didn't like what I saw there um, on your 10 signs of narcissism. So, um, but then I I heard you say something or I'm not sure if it was on interview, but you said something about, you know, curiosity is a sign that you're okay.
1: Yeah. So, well, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that when you, I think what you're referring to is I've got a chapter in there on, uh, I think I called something like the characteristics of the narcissistic pastor. We talk about decision-making that focuses on, on him, impatience, entitlement, uh, impulsivity, things like that. Right. And, um, I think that, I think that if you're humble and self-aware, you'd probably notice yourself in, in a great many of those. I mean, I think, I think that, um, all of us who do this kind of work, you know, who, by the way, who get masters of divinity? Who master divinity? Even that title, right, is is <laughs> uh, something else. But who who sort of dare to speak God's word uh, from a stage, from a platform? Uh, we say this is the word of the Lord. You know, we speak we speak on behalf of God. We we uh, we exegete the scriptures. There is there there's something to that, right? And I I do find that when I do this kind of work, there are there are people who I worked with who might spike in particular categories or they might, yeah, yeah, I I see how I have some impulsivity. I can see how I I can be attention seeking. But when there's a basic curiosity that I think is motivated by humility uh, and a healthy self-awareness, I'm not quite as worried. And in fact, when I do my psychological assessments, um, there may be a spike up the spectrum on narcissistic personality. But if we get talking about it inevitably if there's some curiosity it turns into a really good conversation now at other times I would say there's some resistance and uh, what I've gotten any number of times is well I knew it you psychologists, you're always trying to find the bad in people and I'm I'm so gifted and of course you're gonna come after me this is Satanic attack this is you know I'll get the resistance every now and then too and that's that's a surefire sign to me that this is a person with massive defenses within and that's a red flag.
0: Yeah, there. Um, I took notes on on, on your book, and, and there were ten signs. The one that that jumped out uh, the most uh, in me and is is a a new word that you kind of coined is vulnerability, like vulnerability, fake vulnerability. Yes. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. It's hard to, it's hard to say and people, but if you read it, it it makes sense. It's the word faux, like fake, fake vulnerability. Like what, what, what is that?
1: Yeah. Good question. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think that that word, that concept, that idea emerged out of, what I've seen over the last maybe ten years or so, maybe a little a little longer than that, uh, when I first when I first became a pastor, when I became a therapist in the mid '90s, mid to late '90s, uh, there was an aversion to therapy, personality assessments, and things like that, at least in the circles that I ran in. But then there was a growing interest and intrigue around these kinds of things, and and I I began to see that pastors who would spike on the narcissistic spectrum. They might have some tools in fact. They might say, "Well, I go to see a therapist and I know my my enneagram type and I know that I'm a, this on the Myers-Briggs and these are my strengths on the strength finder and I know what my challenges are." And I they might even say, "You know, I sin in these ways or I spike in these categories." But when it came down to it, it was a way it was sort of a way of talking that was a masked vulnerability, a faux vulnerability. In other words, it, there wasn't a real honest uh, like in the moment confession of sin or specific question it would be general. Like, I, you know, generally I've had that problem in the past or I know I, how I can be. But if you come to them specifically and say, but, you know, last night, uh, Jody on your staff encountered you in this way, there'd be massive defensiveness. So in the specific moments, in the concrete action, there'd be resistance. Although they could generally say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner or I know that that's a weakness of mine. Uh, That's become a really important piece of the work that I've done is, is teasing out the more vulnerable narcissism that I sometimes see in, in pastors.
0: Yep. How, how I've noticed it in myself and and the pattern I recognized is that, um, I, I initiate the, the sharing and the vulnerability because I get to be in control. Hmm. Um, because I, you know, I, I share what I'm comfortable with and I, you know, I, I, I share first. So people see that okay, he's not afraid, but it really is to throw them, throw people off my scent, so they don't ask me deeper questions that I'm not in control of. So I, I've noticed yeah. that, and when I read that, I'm like, man, uh, he just he just explained this yeah. thing that I've been doing for you know most of my life mm. as a as a defense mechanism. Wow. So um, yeah, I, I thank you for for teasing teasing that out.
1: Yeah, and thank you for naming that. I mean, I think. I think the tricky part of it then is to say, uh, well, how does this play out in my life right now and in, in my relationships? In other words, I think one of the one of the challenging questions that that you can invite others to answer for you is, how do you experience me? And if you're willing to hear that, you know, if you're willing for people to come to you, and if I'm willing for people to come to me and say, so I know you can say that, but here's how I've experienced it, you know, um, in ways that are hurtful to me. I can tell you that over the years, as I've used that question in leadership, it's painful when someone comes and knocks on your door and says, well, you remember that question you asked Chuck about ex- how I experience you? I've got some feedback I need to give you. And it's kind of hard. Can we talk? Um, that's a true test of this, you know? Yeah. And there's something, you know,
0: you, you talked about some statistics and some different things. You said uh, two things that jump out at me. Um, You said that there's more narcissism in the church by four to 500% than the general population. And then you also say something about like 70 up to 75% of the church planters that you've, you've encountered have narcissistic uh, tendencies. Yeah. Like that's like, wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so So this is a this is a tricky conversation because we're we're really looking for more data, too. I mean, a lot of what uh, there was a study that came out a few years ago that um, that uh, a number of people called into question that had some significant stats around this. And we're really trying to get better data on pastors. Um, uh, My my own work, uh, of course, uh, my own work with church planning assessments for instance or pastoral assessments over the last yeah.
0: and, and I've done the same thing. I, I I'm a church planning catalyst. Yeah. I, I coach church planners. We've I've um we've led church planning. I, I don't know, I've been through dozens and dozens of church planning assessments mm-hmm. over the years and coaching. Yeah. And let me tell you, you're right on with that. Yeah. You're right yeah. on. This is yeah. yeah. I've seen the same thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I, I wanna I want to tell people that I just, I did a few church planning assessments last week. Right. And um, for a Canadian organization and each one of the men that I, I tested spiked uh, in narcissism and immediately there's some anxiety in that conversation with these guys as we begin to debrief. And what I want to say is that uh, just because there's a spike in narcissism doesn't mean that you have narcissistic personality disorder. And in fact, it may mean that you're more confident, you're more comfortable on stage. I mean, a lot of us struggle with public speaking and anxiety around that, and and there are there are there are people like a lot of the pastors I assess who don't struggle as much with that, um, yeah, who have a basic confidence, and self-assurance, uh, strong self-image, and that's not in and of itself bad. And in fact, I've seen some really healthy. I can give you. I, I I'm starting to talk about more help, hopeful stories these days because I know that people often hear me talk and they're like, "Is it just bad news?" and I and I want to say, no. As I've done this testing, even with uh, men and some women who I've tested who spike on narcissism, we've seen over the years how they thrived in ministry, and there's been humility and and also gifts that include their uh, inspiring charismatic personality and a, a really confident sort of way of showing up in front of people and um, a, a good and healthy sense of security. And so those things can go hand in hand. Uh, the problem is uh, that there, there are those who are not as self-aware and uh, do not surround themselves with people who are willing to give them feedback. And that's where we get into trouble.
0: You know, uh, I, I don't know why uh, this seems like a very, very timely um, topic. And it seems like um, out of all your, your other uh, books and resources, it, it seems like this one has hit a nerve that um, a lot of people are, are interested in this topic at, at yeah. this time. Can, 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 can you um, talk to why you think that is that, that this topic is, is, is so timely. And yeah. also um, like, what's like, what, what's the fallout of, of narcissism in the church?
1: Yeah. Well, so, uh, my book is alongside a number of other books, really good books in this last year. And there have been others written too, but just in this last year, Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura have a book out, uh, um, Diane Langberg, uh, out of Philadelphia has a book out, Wade Mullen. Um, there are a number of us writing at these intersections and, and in part, um, I want to say it's because we're in a kind of moment of reckoning within the church. Uh, We've known about some high, high profile uh, pastors and church planners and organizational leaders over the last number of years who've, who've had um, very public falls from grace. Uh, And and in the last few years, there have been some even bigger names, right? And, and so there. You, know, you probably remember this three, four years ago, there was this Me Too movement that became this Church Too movement where uh, people were becoming more and more uh, confident sharing stories of experiencing spiritual abuse and emotional abuse, even sexual abuse in the church. I mean, this has long been a conversation now the last 20 years in the, the Catholic church, but people are beginning to talk about these, uh, these things in the evangelical church. And, and the hard thing is, is these are, conversations that are coming up about some folks that we we've known and we've loved. Um, and
0: my, most people, ad, a lot of people admire and respect. And yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: let me tell you when, when I heard the news about Jean Vanier, the founder of the Large communities, um, a mentor to Henry Nowen, uh, some of your listeners may not know that name, but Jean Vanier was, was a kind of a God in our books. You know, there, there are some people on earth that just you 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 sense that they're saintly. And, um, and Jean Vanier was right up there for so many of us. And I remember the day that a friend called and I thought, not Jean Vanier. Um, there are experiences like that. Uh, and people know the stories most recently of Ravi Zacharias and Bill Hybels, where um, there, there is a kind of moment of reckoning that we're in. And I, I don't know the particular details of all the stories that come out. And I, in my book, I really stayed away from naming names to focus on dynamics very intentionally to say, I want this to be about you, the reader, um, looking at your own story, looking at your own situation, look at, looking at yourself. Um, and in, in this moment where we're being invited to humility, I remember in seminary, I read this book by Richard Baxter called The Reformed Pastor. Mm-hmm. And Baxter, in the beginning of the book is, in a sense, he's addressing an assembly of, of fellow pastors in a moment, um, in a season of great grandiosity and arrogance and dissension in the church and calling them to humility and self-awareness. And, uh, he went on to write a book on the mischiefs of self-ignorance and the benefits of self-acquaintance. And I think we're in one of those moments where we are experiencing the mischiefs of self-ignorance. I'm
0: gonna have to look up that book. Um, yeah. You're giving me. I'm make I'm taking notes here. You're giving me a bunch of uh, <laughs> follow-up things. To...
1: We're talking a title that goes back a few hundred years, right? And yeah, yeah. Hey, line. Richard
0: Baxter. I mean, you know, you're you're a smart seminary professor. Uh, you know, out there in, in Holland, Michigan, you guys yeah. are smart up there. And um, <laughs> yeah, right. um even the you know even the Reformed pastor that's hard to read.
1: Yeah, uh, some yeah. old English. You know. Well, this is, but this the thing is, is in the church you've got. I mean, go all the way back to St. Augustine, right. And his confessions, nine chapters of here's my story of how I took advantage and sexually manipulated and lusted and this and that. And he begins chapter 10 with the words, let me know myself. Oh God, let me know you. Hmm. And I think that there's profound humility in that. That's where Calvin begins the institutes uh, with self-knowledge and God knowledge. Um, and I can give you lots of examples of folks in the in the Christian and and even in the Reformed tradition, depending on what where your listeners are, who uh, who are very concerned about self awareness, self knowledge, humility. Um, I do think we've been in a season where uh, we we've become a little full of ourselves. We've had some success, and I, I know I've been in the church planning world, and we've seen some growth and success in in certain areas, and cities, and other places, and. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I have to, we all have to sort of be aware of how this shows up in, in us. And you better believe when I was writing the book, I was writing the book to myself as well. Yeah.
0: You actually, um, shared about when you first, uh, when you were a seminary student, someone pulled you aside and said, Chuck, um, you got to do something because you're going to hurt the church. Um, can you share that story and part of, part of your journey? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that that was that was a really important, if not the most important moment in the sense that I was uh, I was a young, arrogant, mid 20 something seminary student who had gone off to England to Oxford. I loved saying that I'd gone to Oxford. I had the sweatshirt, the baseball hat with the Oxford logo. And
0: I I don't even own Oxford shoes. So that's impressive. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I, you know, it was all about impressing people. And yet what I discovered when I was over there studying with um, this tutor was just a deep insecurity that was coming out in panic attacks and massive social anxiety and shame. And I didn't have any words for it at the time. And I sat down with a counseling professor at my, my seminary and a guy who I didn't have a whole lot of respect for because he was the touchy feely prof. And I didn't deal in emotions and he deconstructed me within 10 minutes. And, uh, and he, you know, there was a lot of compassion in him saying, Chuck, I think if you continue the way you are, you will be dangerous to the church and you're probably already dangerous to your wife. That's not the only thing he said that day, but um, he noted that, that I was carrying a, a ton of uh, pain, shame. Uh, yeah. He saw me in a way that I needed to be seen. And, you know, I think I wanted to be seen as smart and put together and, uh, you know, a, a gift to the church. And what he said to me is there's so much more to you, Chuck. There's beautiful gifts and there's just profound brokenness. Um, and I, you know, I think thanks be to God. I was 27 years old. Uh, I I was in cathartic tears for the next um, half hour as he shared these things. I think there's probably still a stain on the floor from my my tears that day. And I began to go to work on myself. Um, I ended up doing the counseling program there at the seminary and uh, getting counseling, and it was really important.
0: You had a you had a good will Hunting Robin Williams uh, moment there.
1: Oh, huh? Yeah, sure <laughs> did. Yeah. And many more after that, because there was just more, so much more from where that came from, you know? And, um, I was really, I I mean, just one other piece of it was that when I entered into this counseling program, I went to reform theological seminary in Orlando and they had this very experiential counseling program. I was one of just a few males with many, many women in the program who, when I came into the program were fearful of me because of how I showed up at the seminary. And, um, They began giving me feedback about how I showed up in ways that were hurtful or arrogant or dismissive or passive aggressive. And it was like almost every day I had to face some new aspect of how I had um, sinned against people and hurt people and 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 some new aspect of how I had been hurt as well.
0: So you, you said something that I relate to. Uh, you know, you talked about shame and insecurity, but how it, um, how others experience you out there in the world is, is prideful, narcissistic, you know, grandiose. And and really it's, it's armor, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. It's, it's a, it's a defense that goes up early in life. And this is what we find with narcissism as well. Uh, Chances are those who are, who spike in a high level level on narcissistic personality disorder. Um, were bullied, we're hurt, we're abused, we're shamed in some way. They have stories of, um, they might, might not be able to articulate it in one incident or one episode, but, um, experience of, of feeling small, insecure, inadequate, ashamed and unwittingly do, started to develop, develop defenses, uh, to armor them against the pain of the world. Um, the, the tricky thing about this is that uh, we don't we don't choose to do this. You know, this sort of happens. Uh, this this happens in our autonomic nervous system. Uh, we begin to go into a kind of survival mode. We begin to develop these primitive psychological defenses that keep us from having to feel insecure and feel ashamed. Um, I, I was working with a guy a number of years ago who, as we got back into his story, and he'd spiked. Uh, in a highway on narcissistic personality disorder, we discovered some profound pain at the age of around seven or eight years old. And we were digging into his story and he remembered being bullied at that age. And I mean, here again, another, another story of a man in tears, just weeping in my office one day, saying, I just never knew, I never knew how afraid I was. And I'm so scared to be in that place again. Like what, who am I without my defenses? And I thought that that was, that was such a telling phrase who am I without my defensive defenses who am I without my wall up I don't know any other way of being in the world except well defended
0: Wow yeah so the let's talk about spiritual abuse um, what what is that and and uh, we hear more and more stories really because People are, they're, you know, they're getting permission to share their stories. And because um, one of the things I'm, I want to talk to you later about is you mentioned not just narcissistic leaders, but narcissistic systems. And, um, you know, the system is narcissistic. And so w- people in the past haven't felt openness to talk about these things, but this has been happening uh, for, you know, since, since Adam and Eve, probably, uh, what, what is the results of spiritual, spiritual abuse?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So spiritual abuse is a really important category for me. Um, I, it goes back a number of years. I read a book called the subtle power of spiritual abuse. Um, and, uh, I remember, uh, realizing for the first time, that pastors, in in really subtle ways and somewhat manipulative ways, can hurt people, even in and through uh, sp- what seemingly spiritual means. right? And so one of the things we've been discovering is that uh, pastors, what what we know and what we're uh, what we're attending to even more now is that pastors have power. Uh, when we show up in a room with our master of divinity, when we show up in a room with our ordination, uh, when we get behind the pulpit, when we get on stage, we've got a kind of power. Um, people believe us because they believe that we've been called in a particular kind of way, that we have a certain kind of authority. Um, when we use that authority in ways that can be twisted, uh, when, we, when we interpret scripture in a way that um, benefits or supports us or manipulates another person, when we use our uh, authority to put a person in their place, or to draw someone, perhaps someone of the opposite sex, into, into intimacy with with us um, as we use our power or authority to alienate people or polarize factions, we're using our authority abusively. And uh, and so spiritual abuse has to do with the way we use our God-given power and our God-given authority. And the thing about spiritual abuse, like emotional abuse, is that uh, the wounds are invisible. Uh when someone is physically abused, there might be a bruise on their eye, uh, but these are invisible, emotional, and spiritual abuses. Where uh, you will discover that the person who's been abused will will feel um, will feel like, how can I ever trust God? For instance, because this person who is supposedly this man of God uh, used and abused my trust, drew me in, and and then uh, sidelined me and ghosted me. Uh, when I dared to push back. And so it can be really potent, really powerful and hurtful.
0: I, I can imagine just like um, if you were, if you had um, you, if you grew up in an abusive family situation with your, you know, with your parents, some type of, uh, you know, abuse in that situation, it leaves these deep wounds and, and that's on one level, but um, being abused by a pastor that it's it's intrinsically connected to your experience of God and your faith, and it just it just um, uh, wounds that person even even more deeply in their soul.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You just named it. I think because this person uh, represents God in, in some sort of way to someone. Well, uh, the other piece of it is we tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, well, he went through seminary, or he's been ordained, or I was. I, I, People have laid hands on him and so he can't be wrong. It must be me. And this is, there's a crazy making dynamic with, with spiritual abuse where you feel like it's got to be me. I've, it must have been me who did something wrong because you know everyone loves him or he's got this powerful ministry or the church has grown or we you know whatever he touches turns to gold. And so there is that kind of uh, crazy making dynamic to spiritual abuse that's particularly powerful too.
0: Let me um, read a uh, a quote from your book, uh, and uh, page 19. I I underlined a bunch of different parts that jumped out at me. Uh, You write, When I started doing psychological assessments for pastors and church planners, I saw that narcissistic traits were often presented as strengths. Narcissism can be interpreted as confidence, strong leadership, clear vision, a thick skin. A colleague of mine says that ministry is a magnet for a narcissistic personality, who else would want to speak on behalf of God every week? You, you, can you uh, uh, comment with that? Yeah, Just what what yeah. Uh, I think that was a very powerful um, yeah. insight.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and this is where we we even may be duped in our in our assessment processes and things like that. And I'll oftentimes have, have folks come to me and say, Hey, I, I need you to do an assessment on a guy for me. We all think he's great. Uh, Seems like the marriage is great, really confident, incredible communicator, has already raised $100,000. And as I begin to do some of the assessment work, I realize that that confidence is is really uh, a kind of masked arrogance and there's a sense of entitlement. I remember, I tell a lot of stories about this in the book, but I remember sitting with a guy at one point and I noticed the way he condescended to his wife. And, um, it was something that others hadn't picked up on And I checked in with her and she sort of meekly said, Oh, it's okay. It's just the way he is, you know? And I had this sense of if this is the way he is with his own wife, how is he in other relationships? And when I, when I subtly tried to push in and say, well, there's some things here that I think maybe we need to attend to a little bit more. I mean, he just very quickly, um, it's like he took the invisible knife out and stuck me with it. It was like, there's no way we're going any further. I know what you're up to. Um, You counselors, therapists, psychologists are always reading too much into things. It turned out uh, he was approved and it was three, maybe four years later that uh, we, uh, I got a phone call from someone who said that did not turn out well at all. Um, There were staff members that served under him that were bullied and and uh, he's not in ministry anymore. It's things like that, right? Where we see people with gifts and we want to say, okay, well, the Lord has blessed him, but those gifts may may have been animated by trauma, uh, may have been formed in the context of profound pain or abuse in his life. And that's why uh, that's why there are folks like me who try to press in and ask some deeper questions. Don't want to, I don't want to unnecessarily throw up yellow flags or red flags to really gifted people in ministry. I I'm just uh, I'm just really passionate about us, us, us being healthy in ministry.
0: Yeah. Um, I've noticed like in, in, in church planning assessments and, and working with church planners is that, you know, we, we you look for the guy who, is is tenacious who doesn't like i'm gonna do it no matter what i don't need i don't need you i'm gonna you know this 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 ultra confidence you know and and behind it is this drivenness and i i i I think it's a drivenness to um i don't know out outrun their shame and insecurity or to prove themselves and but it comes out as just super driven and, and people on the outside said now that's a leader that's a leader
1: yeah. Yeah. That's what's tricky. Right. And I, you know, I have a chapter in there called shame and rage in the narcissistic pastor. And, and underneath a lot of that drivenness is uh, uh, what if you really find out who I am? Yep. Uh, I, I asked this question in my, my narrative assessment around what's the worst thing that could happen in pastoral ministry? Uh, what would be the worst thing that could happen? And I'm telling you 90, 90 to 95% of the time, the word failure shows up. Um, I would fail. And when I get down behind that, it's uh, people will see that I'm an imposter. Um, I will be it will be revealed that I, you know, that I'm in I'm deeply inadequate uh, to the role. Uh, I, I wouldn't have grown a church in the way I'd hope to grow a church. And so uh, w- one of my doctor of ministry students right now is a longtime church planter and uh, really great guy. He came in wanting to study shame in church planters. And I thought, yeah, that, that sounds really good. And about halfway through our doctorate ministry program, he said, I think what I came here for was to discover my own shame. And um, he ended up writing a really brilliantly vulnerable doctoral dissertation, looking at shame, the nature of shame and church planters in himself. Uh, I, I love I love when we, as pastors, can come together and have those kinds of conversations because that's not a deal breaker. Then, in, in a way, that that actually tells me that you're you're right where you need to be and you're ready to you're ready to do the work so that you can be a healthy pastor.
0: Yeah, you write you write in your book um, talking about church planners that uh, it seems like church planning organizations actually uh, it seems like they look for Narcissistic uh, leadership qualities, and, and you, you you write, it says that like when we quote baptize spiritual giftedness, um, baptize narcissism as spiritual giftedness. Uh, in that way, it says it does a great disservice to them, and it ignores the deep well of shame and fragility lurking within.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's what ends up happening is we we really do just baptize particular. Gifts. Um, we've talked about confidence. Um, it could be charisma. It could be communication style. It could be um, intellect. Things like this. Uh, we we take them at face value, rather than asking the question. So what what's the story? What's the story behind that? You no, know, just in terms of a story behind that. I worked with a guy uh, some time ago who, you know, when we got back behind his story. Uh, And what he discovered was in my family, um, for you to be, let's just say his last name was Smith, for you to be a real Smith and belong in the Smith family, you've got to excel. And there was this kind of bow taken in the midst of a family that excelled at everything that I will never fail. And so he was pushed to succeed at a very early age. Academically, he became a valedictorian. Uh, he was uh, very confident on stage. He was a good communicator and speaker. He was in the debate club. He was an all-star in all the sports. Uh, and you know, I I met him as probably a a, a pretty tender and fragile 38 year old who just had an affair. And when we look back behind that, there was so much. Like I just wanted to be known, and yet I was pushed to I was pushed to excel, pushed. To, And that's the thing is, is a lot of these guys, you know, and this is where I have immense compassion, just want to be known. Um, They'd like someone to know them backstage. You know, everyone sees the onstage version of who they are. It's sort of like, uh, you know, when I'm doing the counseling work, uh, even though they're terribly afraid of being known there, there's also simultaneously a longing for someone to see the shadow side, um, the, you know, the powerful addiction in their life or the way, the ways in which they get their needs met that bring them great shame.
0: You know, your, your book, um, helped me to put some words to my own, own journey, because, you know, I definitely see all these tendencies in me. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I think is now it's, it's God's grace in my life that I didn't go down this journey was that God, um, Uh, allowed me to experience a lot of failure. And the thing is, if I, if I led, you know, if the churches I planted became huge mega churches, I guarantee you, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I I would mess up my life because my soul could not handle that amount of success and, you know, people praising that failure was, was God's grace to me, for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. You know, success isn't a teacher necessarily, but failure is a teacher. And I think, you know, I, we're in, uh, we're recording this during the season of Lent right now. Right. And I, for years, I would get up as a pastor in front of folks and say, well, at Ash Wednesday, I'd say, you were dust into dust, you shall return. I didn't know the power of those words until maybe a decade ago or so when I was, you know, when I was turning 40 and I was in a place of, uh, of a lot of anxiety and, uh, feeling overwhelmed in the ministry that I was in, uh, you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're limited, you're fragile, you're vulnerable, you're broken, you're sinful, you're needy. Those were like those are words I wanted to stay away from, you know. And gradually through through my own process of therapy, uh, another round of intense therapy about a decade ago, I was like, yeah, I am. i'm I'm scared. Oftentimes I feel like a little boy. I walk into a room. And I, I I speak in a lot of the contexts I'm in, and I have massive social anxiety, and I'm afraid of being found out. Um, I teach at a seminary now with really smart people with PhDs from all the best schools, and I feel like an imposter most of the time. And and it's a reckoning with um, our our own uh, failures and fears of failure that is actually the gift. That's where the treasure is, and that's the paradoxical part of this is that. We feel like if we go down that road, all will be lost. And th- that's where redemption is found. You know, Jesus is sort of inviting us in the path, as Henry Nowen says, of downward mobility. Uh, and it's in this in this death, these deaths in our life that we experience resurrection.
0: That's good. We, uh, we have uh, j- just a few more minutes. I, there's two um, topics I, I want to uh, discuss with you um, before we end. Uh, The first one is about narcissistic systems. And then, and then I I wanted to close talking about, um, you know, next steps and your idea about the exodus. So, so yeah, those are two things I I want to just get your thoughts on. Uh, First off, let's talk about narcissistic systems. Like, Hey, this is the thing for some crazy reason, people are attracted to narcissistic narcissistic leaders yeah like if you want to grow a church fast that's what you do right that's cool. that's so why why is that what, what what are the cultural structural factors that yeah that make us you know that foster that type of culture and environment
1: yeah yeah there are a lot of good things written on the the dynamics here there's a there's a writer guy who's actually a cia profiler named gerald post who talks about um the idealistic followers of narcissistic leaders and how um, it's often folks uh, who lack confidence, who have some sense of um, uh, uh, that, uh, who need a guide, who who are insecure, who are looking for certainty. They're looking for the confident leader. Who are drawn to narcissists? They like the certainty. That's why churches that tend to grow big or churches that are led by by leaders who are tend to be confident, dogmatic. You know, these are the folks who get the followings. You know. Um, This is why Jesus is so revolutionary, right? Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the the mourners. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty. Jesus turns this all on its head. But we know psychologically that, you know, just as Israel wanted a king, God wasn't enough. You know, I want a king that I can put on the throne, a king that I can own in a sense. So we want to put our own kings on the thrones. We want to have control. And it's as old as Genesis chapter 3. Uh, God, I'm just not sure uh, in your economy of things that it's going to turn out best for me. So I'm going to grasp the fruit uh, so that my eyes can be open. And I can see how the world really is. And I do think that this is deep in our nature. Um, we want to take it into our own hands and we look for the kinds of leaders that will, you know, bolster our sense of insecurity or weakness. And yeah, that's kind of the dynamic behind it.
0: Yeah. And, and in the book, you, you write about um, a church that that they, they got rid of a, a quote, a narcissistic uh, leader and thinking that, that, that will fix it. But really the problem was that it was a, the system, they, they were in a narcissistic system and no matter who they replaced them with, it was always the same yeah. Um, yeah. issues.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the troubling part about it. And I tell a few different stories like that, where, you know, it, it, there are systems that are formed around narcissistic leaders and systems that practically invite narcissistic leaders. So you may remove one only to find that they're hiring the exact same person. There's a high, high profile church that went through this just recently where the senior leader, kind of legendary pastor uh, was removed And then uh, a couple of years later, they're looking for the next pastor and you look at the job description, they're basically asking for the same kind of person, uh, in part because the organization never did, the leadership never did their work. Uh, They they felt like, well, we got rid of the problem. Um, Instead of saying, you know, we all contributed to the problem. Um, We all uh, lauded him, venerated him, practically worshipped him. And now we're looking for the next person to venerate. We're looking for... You know, just the, even in the even in the job description, there were there were things that were practically inviting someone who is larger than life. And, and so, yeah, it exists in the invisible systems or in and around us.
0: So it's not just blaming the guy that that, you know. Um, right now that there might be church members or, or church yeah, leaders, right. just like saying, blaming the guy we got to get. But it, it's a it's a deeper journey that yeah. um, the the guy has his power because we empowered him.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I, I'm going to sound a little cynical right now for a moment. Um, I, I talk about sin and talked about sin for a long time, not just in terms of what happens inside us, but among us, within us, around us. Uh, Now, that's become a little controversial as we talk about uh, systemic sin and racism and stuff. But I really believe that to be true, that sin exists in the powers and the principalities around us, um, oftentimes in invisible ways and relational dynamics and organizational systems and how we arrange our lives with one another, the power structures that we set up. And so we have to do the work of dismantling um, systems. Um, That doesn't mean that we... Every hierarchy. That doesn't mean that every organization is in and of itself problematic. It does mean that we've got to ask the really hard questions around the structures, uh, the mental models that we live with, um, uh, the not just the articulated values, but the unarticulated um, and often invisible values of the of the system, things like that.
0: Wow. The. The last thing I, I, I want to get your thoughts on is the, 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 your kind of, you know, the what next, like your suggestions and you write about the Exodus, uh, journey. And by the way, I, I think this was your first book. And I think yeah. it was the, uh, uh, is your, I, I think it's your best book. thank you. Um, uh, the book on the Exodus. Yeah. Uh, when I was uh, preaching through the Exodus, I, I, I picked up your book, and I'm like, yeah. "Man, this is good stuff." Yeah, thanks. So l- let me read a a, a quote um, about about the Exodus. About this is the journey. Uh, page one thirty three says the Exodus story allows us to see ourselves and our congregations as pilgrims on a healing journey. It invites us to see the enslavement that keeps us from from thriving. It invites us to be brave enough to cry out to God. It invites us to a to the risky journey, fleeing what is familiar from, uh, for an unpredictable path ahead. It invites us to have patience in the face of a long and winding wilderness road. It invites us to lament in the face of continued pain. It invites us to resolve to enter a new land, a hope-filled place of flourishing. First off, um, that is good prose there. That is, that is good writing. Thank you for writing that. Can can you talk about uh, the Exodus, uh, yeah. like how you see the Exodus as kind of the the path
1: yeah. towards yeah. healing? Yeah. You know, so this, uh, here we are at the end of our time and it really comes back full circle to uh, that summer I was in Oxford, England, and I studied uh, under a guy named Alistair McGrath, a reformed theologian and just brilliant. Uh, he was talking about the Exodus story, story in the spiritual tradition. And he said something to the effect of the Exodus story is our story. Um, we've left Egypt. We're on a wilderness journey. Uh, we're entering the promised land. And um, it, it became, as you said, uh, a, a book, my first book and one that I'm really proud of, but also, you know, that that's a book that, that uh, invites people to go on that long and winding journey. Right. I mean, that's, that's, That's a book that says there's no way through the wilderness or I mean, over the wilderness. There's no helicopter ride, you know, that gets us uh, gets us uh, a free pass from the wilderness. We've got to go on that journey. And I think that's what I tell churches who are uh, asking. So what's next? What do we need to do? I just had a conversation with a church the other night and I said, "I, I feel like the process that you're about to engage in. Is going to be uh, one of the most important, defining, uh, hope filled, excruciating times of, of the life of your 50 you know, some odd year old church. Uh, because they're about to enter into some really hard questions uh, about the kind of leaders they've chosen over the years, uh, the dynamics, that hidden dynamics between the, the elders and the elder board who've never really had an honest conversation. You know, in the wilderness, we rip off the Band-Aids and we do major surgery on our hearts. You know, um, when we're in Egypt, we just paint our prison cells and make them, you know, spray some uh, spray to freshen them up. But when we go in the wilderness journey, we've got to do the surgery. And and some of our churches, some of our organizations need to do major surgery. We need to get in and figure out not just tinker, but we need to get in and figure out like what why is it? that we continue to fall into this same pattern, do the same dance with one another uh, so that we can experience the promised union, communion, connection, freedom, uh, relationship, redemption that we long for.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. Do you, uh, in closing, do you have any last words for pastors right now who are struggling, that God is taking them, forcing them to go through the wilderness right now. And maybe just words of encouragement about like that, that the wilderness, that's, that's the grace of God. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just speak directly to them? Just a word of encouragement? Yeah.
1: Yeah. In some ways, you know, this is where I wish we had the journals of uh, the apostle Paul from his three years in the wilderness, right? His three years of you know, it took him three years to go from being Saul to being Paul, right? A massive um, time of probably disruption and some deconstruction of everything that he knew, um, a dying to be raised in Christ. You know, all of the great theology that we get in the Pauline letters came out of a lived experience of dying to Saul and living to Paul, living to Jesus, really, in Paul. And so, I think my encouragement is that that's the way of, of Jesus. It's um, Henry. Now talks about in the wilderness temptation in Matthew chapter four um, that, um, that the temptations are to uh, what does he say to become powerful, spectacular and relevant, the three temptations, right? Yep, and, yep. and Jesus refuses them all. And he goes on this, this journey that it inevitably leads him to suffering and death, which culminates in resurrection. And, I resist that in my own life. I want to find a path that avoids the wilderness, that goes up into the right. I want a spiritual a spirituality that's microwavable. Uh, give me three steps or seven steps or however it takes. Just give me the recipe so I can do life well without pain, without failure, disappointment, vulnerability. And I think Jesus, I think the Apostle Paul, and others say, no, there's no way. It's through weakness. It's through vulnerability. Um, that, that's my hope, uh, for pastors. And, and I, I think that's a word that I'd, I'd offer if that's, if there's anything in that, that you hear, it's like, yeah, okay. I think that's a journey I need to go on. Uh, it's really worth it. It's hard. It's humiliating. It's tiring. Uh, there are some things that you'll have to own up to. Um, but on the other side is, is a really incredible freedom that I think, uh, I'm seeing pastors more and more uh, uh, enter into this with courage and find themselves on the other side saying, oh, I waited too long. I waited too long to experience the freedom. So that's my encouragement.
0: Well, Chuck, thank you for your time, your generosity, and uh, thank you for writing this book. I think um, God's going to use this to to challenge a lot of people and to bring healing. So thank you.
1: I hope so. And thank you for, for your work. It was so, so good to meet you a few years ago at the, the conference, and um, I'm grateful for pastors like you. God bless. God bless.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Chuck DeGroats. And uh, I'm going to put in the show notes some of the the books that, that uh, we referred to. But, you know, before we we end this episode, what one of the things that I want to uh, just really I don't know reflect on is this talking about that 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 whole imagery of the the Exodus and you know God calling you out of Egypt um, and to go to this promised land and but in between the leaving Egypt and getting to this promised land you got to go through this Exodus and, and I see this as as a journey that all of us specifically as pastors specifically as struggling pastors need to go through and and it's not just uh, there there needs to be this process because if you don't go through that uh, process of the exodus when you when you reach the promised land it's not going to be it's not going to be a good thing because like that's what that's what Deuteronomy is about you know the book of Deuteronomy was was Moses reminding people writing that writing that that book to remind people of, of God's promises and who they were and, and the covenants of God. And it says this because, because you're leaving slavery and you're going to enter into this new land. And now um, the land flowing with milk and honey, and now you're going to be landowners. You're, you're going to be masters and rulers. You're going to be, you're going to go from the bottom to the top. And, and it's very hard. It's very hard to do that uh, humbly and healthily. So that's why Exodus, that's why the wilderness wandering times is actually God's grace for us. And, and, and for me, that period was just a really dark period of struggle. Uh, there was a few years where I just felt like I just felt depressed. I felt alone. I felt like I was a failure. Um, you know, God really humbled me. I had to close down the church, and I just questioned a lot of. You know, I was angry with God, like questioned God's calling. I questioned, like, God, hey, I thought, I thought you loved me, and I blamed other people. I was, you know, like my wife and I, we 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 weren't on the same page, and I realized that that period of at that time, at that, at that period of time, I thought it was failure. I thought it was that God like left me and he removed his hand of blessing that, that God, God forsook his promises to me. But now what I, what I see was that that was a period of wilderness wandering that, that God needed to take me through a period of struggle to, for my own soul to prepare me because my heart wasn't ready. Uh, Yeah. I like all those things that, that Chuck talked about, you know, all those narcissistic tendencies that, that was there. And it, it was there because it was a cover for my own shame and my, my own insecurity and me trying to prove myself. And God needed to take me through a dark period to work on my heart. And I'm so thankful for that. I I'm I'm deeply thankful for struggle. I'm deeply thankful for those years of of hardship and failure. Um, because it, it made me seek God more and it brought me to a far more healthier place. Because you know, you know what would have been the worst thing for my soul? Um man, if if God would have blessed the work of my hands and grew the ministries that I led you know for it to become mega churches for me to become you know super famous and and known and influential everywhere you know what that you know what that would have done that that would have just cemented my own pride and arrogance and narcissism that I already had like I I'm prideful still as a struggling pastor imagine how much pride I would have if if I had a quote successful ministry or whatever world recognized ministry, and I realized I all those things that I thought I wanted, my soul couldn't handle. My soul couldn't handle those things. Um, so what I want to tell you, Pastor, is is this: if you're going through that 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 dark that, that dark night. That valley of the shadow of darkness, and you're wondering, like God, why are you doing this? I just want to tell you, God, God has you there on purpose. Like it's not an accident that you're going through this. You know, like in Psalm twenty-three, you know it says, the "Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." And it says, you know, He leads me on paths of righteousness for His name'sake. And and part of the paths of righteousness. You know, sometimes he leads us through, you know, green pastures um, next to quiet waters. But sometimes he leads us into the valley of the shadow of darkness. He leads us into the presence of our enemies on purpose. Why is that? Because because he, he cares about you mostly. He is shepherding your soul. And what you need, pastor, what you need is not success. What you need is to walk closely with your God and to learn to trust him, learn to get your identity from him, not from what people say about you, not from success. You need, to, you need to just learn to surrender and draw close and abide. So I just want to encourage you, Pastor, if you're going through the wilderness right now, it's okay. It's where God wants you. It's not a mistake. You need this time. You need this time because if you don't, like you're not going to be prepared for the promised land. Like your soul won't be prepared for the promised land if you don't go through the wilderness. So I want to thank again, uh, Dr. Chuck DeGroat for, for sharing his thoughts. I really want to encourage you to get his book. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church, by Chuck DeGroat, and I'll put some some links um, in the description on the other resources that, that he referred to. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Struggling Pastors podcast. My name is Tian Doan, and I hope this has been helpful to you. If you found it helpful, i appreciate if you would share this podcast with a fellow struggling pastor and leave us a review on apple podcasts. Let me close with a Bible verse Galatians six, nine, let us not grow weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. If we do not give up, pastor do not give up until next time. God bless you.